Welcome back to the Enneagram Journey. Today's episode is Suzanne's Q&A session with the Path Between Us study guide group that met at the Micah Center on Tuesdays for six weeks this summer. Registration is now open for the new Path Between Us small group that will begin Tuesday, September 18th. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com for details and to sign up. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. Um, I think that's affirmation, but I'm not sure. It is is great affirmation. I've become a better parent and a better mom for it and a a better person and realized that God did have a sense of humor when he gave me all these different kinds of kids and why they needed me. But the real question is, for you, I am a two, and I please everybody, and I've learned, because I'm older and through this, that I need to interact with each other type individually. But it's exhausting, I think. And then how do you know when to back up and go be yourself? You know, I you try to meet the needs of other people that you interface with every day because that's just life. Yeah. And you, and you deepen these relationships, but then you have to take... But so how do you know when... Or do they tell you? Does, it, does my eight son tell me when he says, back off, that he that's really means, clear. I'm done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I no longer make him a, his favorite dessert when he does that. Yeah. You know, because he's yeah. not looking for dessert. He's looking for me to back off. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, and the other thing, I, I think it's just real. You said in the book that, or in this little study guide today, that all those answers weren't appropriate or they weren't accurate. I thought they were spot on. Mm-hmm. I thought they were real. Mm-hmm. I thought that every one of us in this room, if we want to be honest, have said that either yeah. in our head or to somebody else, yeah. which makes the Enneagram real. Yeah. So how do you know? It's the how do I back off and get to come back and be me? That's kind of my question. Sure. So the number one question I ask myself as a two, number one question is: Is this mine to do, or what is mine to do? And the number one challenge for me, parenting adult children. Mm. Oh, amen. That now range. Did in you get age, the amen? <laughs> that now range in age from thirty to forty. Mm-hmm. The number one concern or fear that I had was that if I let go, they won't come back. That I somehow served a utilitarian purpose, and I really thought they love me, but when they don't need me anymore, I'm not going to hear from them. And that didn't prove to be true at all. And what has proven to be true is that they still need me, but they need me at my best. They're trying to parent children. They're trying to make their way in the world. So my oldest is an eight. And if I feel needy, I don't go to her. Because she doesn't do needy well, right? Like Joe, I'm sure you all have read or heard that he's just the best person I know. That's lovely, but he's no fun to gossip with. (laughs) He's no fun to complain with because he just doesn't get into any of that. So... I think one of the things that I've learned is to not expect the same relationship with each of my children. And I felt like when they were little, they deserved the same me. (laughs) So I've got these individual relationships with them. And really, I'm very different in all four of them because they all four need something different from me at this point. And I I think we, um, in our fear that we're not going to be wanted, which we're always looking for, I think we tend to create a persona that actually isn't wanted and that our children see through. 
better maybe than anybody else does. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like trusting the investment that you made in the relationship for all the years that led up to this one. And I kind of wait for them to come to me. And I'm not, that all sounds kind of like it's just really fun and beautiful and it was easy and that's not true at all. They're um, all Enneagram-wise and that helps a lot. So for those of you who want to introduce the Enneagram to somebody who doesn't know it and you want them to want to know it and they're put off by you and it and all that. <laughs> so here's how you handle that. Uh, with the road back to you, you simply ask them, or you can do it with the path between us as well. You ask them to just read the chapter on you. And you literally say, I'd like for you just to read this one chapter and then I want my book back. Like, you can read it now, it won't take you long. I'll just wait. And uh, the reason I want you to read that is because that describes me and I want you to know me in somebody else's description besides mine. And very few people read a description that's spot on for you who don't want to know what I said about them. <laughs> And so it's kind of a hook. And then you just go ahead and take your book back and say, you know, if you ever think this might be helpful or anything, let me know. And it's, uh, it really works. <laughs> it's a little manipulative, but you know. So I, I also, though, would warn and would say, there's nothing that you can say about the Enneagram using numbers that you can't say not using numbers. And so a, a, a good line to start conversation rather than end them is to say, that's not how I see that at all. Or this is how I see that, how do you see it? And then we're having an Enneagram discussion without people necessarily being aware that we're doing that. And the only thing I want to add is that I think parenting adult children is the hardest thing I've done relationship-wise ever. Same, I agree. Yeah. Tricky. How, can I ask you? How, sure. How old were, did you teach your children, or did they learn at the same time you did? Uh, I insisted that they learn it for themselves, but they learned it from me at the time when I first started learning. In other words, we listened to CDs together, or we... But were they, were they like four, or were they... Oh, no, 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 no. 24. No. Um, Joey was 18... So that means Joel was, Joel didn't learn early and didn't care. Right. You know, Joel was 31. <laughs> That's not true. So I uh, haven't, um, I don't assign numbers to people and I don't cut corners. You know, I don't believe in the test. I don't believe in any of that. So my kids learned it either in a room like this or by listening to me teach somewhere or in the car when I was trying to learn from somebody else. Hmm. Thank you. Excellent. Sure. Hey, Suzanne, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Um, my question is, it's kind of open-ended, so just take it and run with it however you want. Um, our family is a family of four. Okay. I'm mom, I'm two. Dad's a five. Oldest son is an eight, he's 14 years old, 
and youngest child is an 11-year-old daughter who is a four. So we have five, eight, two, and four. And I've noticed that we all share a line on the Enneagram. And I'm just curious what you would imagine that could mean as far as challenge or struggle for our family. Okay. Well, let's start with two and five. Um, the first time Joe told me that some people didn't like to be touched because a man at the church was complaining about me touching him. As a <laughs> Good grief. He was as bald as Ed is, and every Sunday he prayed for hair. And it's the only Methodist church I've ever been in that had a holy water font as you entered the door. And there was a, a space between the pews, and um, he sat right on the back row of the first set of pews, and the holy water was right behind him. So he prayed for hair every week, and I was trying to live into this preacher's wife role, which I'm not perfectly suited for, we could say. <laughs> So I uh, would just put my hand in the holy water and put my hand on his head and say, give him some hair, and then go on to my seat. So in those days, and still, if Joe calls me Suzanne instead of Suze, then like I'm in trouble. So he came to the parsonage, which uh, uh, interestingly enough was so close to the church that I had to behave for the whole three years that we were there. And he said, Suzanne... And I thought, oh, I've done it. He said, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And he sat me down and he said, not everybody likes to be touched. That's how he started the conversation. And my honest response was, you're kidding. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine that. And then he explained to me that this lovely old gentleman who I was blessing and praying over every Sunday didn't want me to really touch him. So I said to Joe, you need to tell him then to stop asking for people to pray for him to have hair. <laughs> the reality that I am so tactile and that to breathe I require so much affection means that in relationship with the fives, and my mother was a five, Carolyn's been my best friend since I was 18, she's a five. That reality for me is, has become language about how I respect other people. And I finally was able to understand that I had to have respect for that difference between my mom and me or Carolyn and me or other fives and me. Um, so I would start with how you guys negotiate affection and time. And I think the best way to negotiate affection is honestly. So I'm going to tell you one more story because you know that's how I teach. So my mom was a five on the Enneagram and my dad was a one. Ones need a lot of affection, but they don't think it's okay to ask for it. So they expect you to intuit that they need affection, and then they want you to give it to them without conversation. <laughs> Fives who have this limited amount of energy every day of their lives uh, aren't going to give you a bunch of affection unless you ask for it, like, right? So we're dealing with a negotiation 
between a five and somebody else in an intimate relationship. And my mom and dad never knew the Enneagram. So one of the reasons I tell this story is because people do life just fine without knowing the Enneagram. You know, this is lovely and wonderful and helpful, and it's not the end-all, be-all of anything. So uh, my mom and dad were born in 1908 and 1903, so that'll tell you the generation they grew up in. So they adopted me later in life. They already had boys that were 18 and 15. And I noticed looking through some pictures when I was, I think, in the sixth grade, that my twin beds used to be my mom and dad's bedroom suit. And they had a king-size bed all my life. I had never dreamed that that at one time had been their beds. And I was kind of trying to figure out sex and, you know, how all that works. And my dad was a doc and my mom a nurse, and we talked about all things in our home. So my dad and I were running an errand for my mom, and I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. And I said, well, how, how did you and mom have sex in twin beds? <laughs> and he smiled at me, and he said, oh, that was easy. I just wore a hat to bed. I said, oh, you know how when you're that age where you don't know the answer to something and somebody tells you and then you act like you get it, <laughs> right? So that's what I did. I just said, oh. <laughs> And then I thought, you know, there's something about hats that I clearly don't know. <laughs> so I literally went to the Floyd Data Library and looked up hats. <laughs> and we had like the first encyclopedia, whatever that one was. And I looked up hats, nothing, nothing, nothing helped me at all. So uh, again, I was on an errand of some kind with my dad and I said, hey, uh, really think I fully understand what you were saying when you told me that you wear a hat to bed. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll explain it. <laughs> he said, um, your mom and I go to bed every night, and back in those days, I would say that maybe two or maybe three nights a week, after we get in bed, I just take my hat off and throw it over to your mom's bed. And he said, and you know, Lots of times she just threw it back. <laughs> but he said, sometimes she brought it back. Oh. That's the kind of negotiating I'm talking about. They figured out how to negotiate that for a marriage that lasted 56 years without knowing the Enneagram, but understanding that they were different. And I think we don't trust ourselves and others enough to negotiate really important things. And I think that's a huge mistake. Um, fives and eights share a line on the Enneagram, so that's helpful, except when it isn't helpful. They're both very stubborn and opinionated. And... Um, the distance between eights and fours is immeasurable emotionally. And so um, I think things that eights and fours share in common that can be built on is they both insist on authenticity. They both prefer the straight-up truth to all the dancing around that the rest of us do. They, neither one care a whole lot what other people think. And um, 
they both kind of get what they need from inside themselves. So there's a lot there to work with. Um, did I get everybody? That, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> and sometimes people are so thankful and sometimes not. <laughs> so I would tell you that I have uh, now, because I've been telling the hat story for a while, I uh, occasionally will be teaching somewhere in some city to a room full of people, and a, a, a man will walk by the back part of the room, you know, where I can see him but nobody else can, with a hat on and just kind of tip it. <laughs> and one woman uh, mailed me a hat and said, this is ruining my life. <laughs> so I... I just hope it's helpful and not ruining your life. All right, what else you got? Um, on the Enneagram, there's uh, all the discussion about where you move in safety and, or security and where you move in stress. Um, I'm an eight, and I don't really understand the move to five in stress. I get, I feel like I move easily to two. I work with moms and babies. I have no difficulty touching in on deep emotions and nurturing and feeling really um, immersed and being in touch with my feelings and theirs, easy. But the move to eight kind of baffles me because it to feels five. like when I get stressed, or to five yeah. as an eight, um, because it feels like when I get in stress, I just fight harder. So I really am confused about what does it look like for an eight to move to five and um, or any of the other numbers, like... Uh, my husband's a five. I mean, I don't know. How do you know if they're moving to a different number? What does that look like? <laughs> okay. So let me start with, there are two very pregnant women in the room. I'm so glad you work with mothers <laughs> and babies. Um, so much for hats. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they throw them back, and sometimes they bring them back. Um, so uh, let's start with you. And let's start with your example, but everybody in the room. The first thing that happens when you're stressed is you fall down through all of the levels of behavior. So you might be in a healthy place when you're stressed, and then you fall down through average, and then you fall down through what we would call unhealthy. And then beneath unhealthy is excess, and it's excess in your number. And what you sound like you're aware of is when you're in excess in your number because you just get more angry, right? But if you observe yourself, then what you'll find is that from excess in your number, after you get really angry, then you usually withdraw. And it's how you withdraw that defines whether or not you're withdrawing to the high side of five or the low side of five. So it's a good thing when you're really angry for you to back up and reevaluate everything that's happening and your role in what's happening and breathe and then kind of come back in with a plan and with a little bit different perspective. Sometimes eights leave on a kind of an even note and say, I'll be back. I'm going to take a break. Or, But sometimes if you go to the low side of five, my way of talking about it is you just take your marbles and go home. And that means one minute you're here and then you're not. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows you're gone and they know you're angry and they don't really know what to do with that. So I think what we have to be aware of, and not everybody teaches that you can choose 
the high side of your stress number. I'm positive that I'm right, that you can choose the high side. And so when people have done a Know Your Number workshop, I tell them to come back and do it again and listen for the number they go to in stress and the number they go to in security so they understand that space well enough to make good choices. The other thing I say is you can't take care of yourself without the number you go to in stress. So as an eight, you would just go and go and go and go and go, and you need a break. And when you take a break, your perspective changes. So that's, that's how that works. When uh, five goes to seven in stress, it is, um, uh, it's a place where they're even kind of uncomfortable with themselves. It's like some young fives who are just finding themselves in seven are silly as opposed to funny. Or they laugh at other people at an inappropriate time. It's like a, it's a space that you have to learn to occupy because the difference in five and seven is so great. So every number would do well to spend time now working on the number you go to in stress and the number you go to in security. And wings kind of take care of themselves, un unless you're a nine with an eight wing or a three with a four wing. Okay, another question? Yes, sir. So how familiar with the five different types of love languages are you? Very. Very, okay. So I know that for me, my number one um, love language is physical touch, and that doesn't like only apply to like romantic relationships, but also like friendly relationships. So good to know, because you know I'm a toucher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I got it, got it, got it. I'm clear. Sorry, it's so hard to go to these things with your mom, isn't it? Very courageous. Uh, and so I was wondering if, um, like, specifically, like, twos tend to have their number one uh, love language be physical touch or fours or, like, ones, like, words of affirmation or something like that. Here's my experience. My experience is that people who know their love language when they learn the Enneagram tie their Enneagram number to their love language. And people who do it in reverse order don't. So I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I, I think once you learn your Enneagram number, other, other things that you do and other ways that you behave in the world explain themselves to you from the base of that's because I'm this, right? right? And I think there are actually um, aggressive numbers other than sevens whose love language is touch, but I think there are aggressive numbers whose love language is not touch. And I, I think we... I'm about to say something I don't love saying, but I think it's true. I get pretty whipped up when people tell me that the Enneagram is reductive because I actually think that that's definitely not true. I do think five love languages is potentially reductive. So my way of talking about that would be they're valuable, and I'm glad people talk about them because it helps them with a communication with partners or with friends that they don't have the words to use. So I'm, I'm all supportive of that. I think the Enneagram is a bigger discussion. Hi. Hi. I'm a huge fan. I'm really, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thank you for being here. Um, 
I had a question about instincts and uh, it, at what point in our journey should we start, do you think we should start learning about them? Um, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, say a little more. Uh, well, I know that there are three. Um, I know that I see a lot about instincts on like Facebook Enneagram groups. I don't ever hear you talking about them ever. Um, I'd asked Joel about this a couple of weeks ago, and he had said that you recommend that you study the Ingram for a couple of years before you even learn about instincts, and but that actually some of the uh, issues that people have with each other um, actually have to do with their instincts, not even their Enneagram numbers. Sure. Um, so I guess without like opening up a can of worms, mm -hmm. I'm hoping you can steer me in with what what I, I'm I'm only six months into the Enneagram. Yep. Uh, about what you think about the instincts. Okay. So another word for instincts is subtypes. Uh, they're also called instinctual variants, which is being shortened by uh, some people new to the Enneagram who are referring to them as instincts. And um, I don't teach subtypes early because I think um, it confuses your understanding of your everyday way of seeing the world. I think after you have done some Enneagram work, so like y'all have done some pretty good Enneagram work. You've been here week after week and you're, that's not the same thing as taking an indicator, but it's also not the same thing as studying the Enneagram and observing yourself and other people for a couple of years. And I'm in the Enneagram work for the long haul. Like, I want people who come back to this, our home, over and over and over to do Enneagram work because I believe it's transformative. And so I want to talk about the difference in how I would define change and how I would define transformation. And change is when you take on something new. And transformation occurs when something old falls away, usually beyond your control. And what I would like to have the Enneagram be is wisdom that has transformational power, meaning that you cannot just take on something new and then keep moving along. You know how you go see a movie and you walk out of the movie and you say, oh my gosh, I'll never be the same. And then two months later, you can't remember the name of the movie. It's like, <laughs> right, in the moment, it's so great. And then it's, nah, that, that was a good one, I think. So... What I'm suggesting is that if you uh, decide to do a deep dive into the Enneagram and to uh, really uh, embrace the wisdom that's there, then what happens with subtypes is they are either confusing, an excuse for behavior, or a shortcut for many people. And I worry about the shortcut. I think for people who are having trouble figuring out their number, the subtypes might be helpful and they might not. And in my experience, people who learn uh, subtypes too soon use them as an excuse for bad behavior. So um, I've been recording podcasts for a couple of days and um, one of my guests wanted to talk about subtypes, and we just agreed that we weren't going to do that because if we do that on a podcast, Joel gets 100 letters. And um, 
I think there's a time for everything. Now, having said that, let me say this. For people who are listening, who have done a lot of Enneagram work, I think Beatrice Chestnut's work on subtypes is top-notch when you're ready. And if I were you and somebody said that to me and I loved the Enneagram, I'd go get her book today. And I'd get right to looking up my subtype. And I, I would just say, I think it'll mean more to you in a year or two. Sure. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I hope this is on. It is. My name is Helen, and I'm a one on the Enneagram. I've been studying for about six months. I have a question about orientation to time, because as a one, I understand that my orientation to time is the present, but like, <clears throat> I'm always kind of thinking about the mistakes I made in the past or sort of the resentments that are going on in the past. Like yesterday, I said something stupid in a meeting, so today I'm thinking about that, or I'm thinking about the future and the ways that things might not work out perfectly. I don't feel like I'm in the present moment very much at all. So I'd love your thoughts on that. Okay. I'm going to start with, um, Joe was pastor here at this church for 12 years. We've spent a lot of time on this corner. And uh, at any given time, there is the potential for somebody who is living on the street to come here and ask for help. If somebody comes while we're here tonight, we will each in our Enneagram numbers do whatever we do when somebody needs help. And I don't have any judgment about any of that. It's just the way it is. And then the person who needed help will go on. And you will be the person who still thinks about whether or not we did it right, whether or not we gave enough, whether or not we did what was ours to do, because you take responsibility for what happens in real time. Your confusion about what happened in a meeting yesterday is from your voices, not from your orientation at time. And your voices orientation at time is you did it wrong yesterday and your chances of getting it right tomorrow are slim. And so if you haven't named your voices, you need to do that and do it carefully because you don't want to change names later on, right? <laughs> So I, I don't know if Cindy has been here during the time she volunteers here. I don't know if she's been here while y'all have been here, but she's a, a retired psychiatric nurse, and she's a one, and she named her voices Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> so you need to put a lot of time into what you're going to name your voices because it's very difficult to boundary yourself against a nameless voice. And that voice may sound to you like your mother, your father, your kindergarten teacher, whoever, but it, it is its own voice and everyone has one and it has no respect for time. So you watch yourself because when somebody needs something, you stop whatever you're doing and deal with whoever's right in front of you. And that's because your orientation of time is the present moment. Go ahead. You can go. No, you're just helping. Okay. 
What you got? My name is Dana, and I'm a three, and I'm married to a wonderful, lovely, compassionate four. But in times of stress, I feel like our stances just show up like in hypercolor, and we're triggering each other to kind of go to the very worst parts. So I become super focused on doing, 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 really, really aggressive, and he becomes super, super withdrawn and into his internal world, and then it like flip flops so that after I've done, done, done whatever needs to be done, then I'm totally withdrawing into my nine, just trying to like take a breather. And he becomes completely impassioned about whatever it was that was going on inside his internal world. And he's sharing that with me. And I feel like I just got nothing left to meet him where he is. And I know in terms of your teaching with the stances, you talk about not reducing the two, you know, centers that we use, but bringing up the other one. So I think, okay, I need to bring up my emotions. But like I said, I just feel like I got nothing left and he's so intense with that. So what can I do to break that cycle to be more present in the moment and not get taken over by that impulse in both directions? Sure. That's such a good question. So, um, I think once we, uh, get some Enneagram wisdom on board, we kind of want to kick back and let it do the work for us. It's like, oh, I get you now. Like, I can only imagine as a three married to a four how lovely the Enneagram has been for you. It's like, oh, okay. So, um, you know, I, I think bringing up your repressed center is, like many other things, and it's the byline for the MICA Center, is work, solitary work, that can't be done alone. And so you guys are going to have to work at methodology for meeting those moments in life together. And honestly, Joe and I have arrived at many of the ways that we do life by recognizing that we needed to make a rule until we learn to do it that way in tandem. And rules require discipline and tattling and sending you to your room and we have a rule, why didn't you do it, and all of that. And they speed up fours and they slow down threes. So I think uh, rule number one might be... Um, I'm willing because I'm a doer and you're doing repressed. I'm I'm really kind of willing to do 65%. I feel like I have all the gifts and graces for that and I'm good for that. And I'm I'm all in, but you have to do your 35. And if two years from now you feel like you can do 45, then it'll be a challenge for me to let go of 10%, but I'll meet you there. And I, you know, I just think you have to hammer out some agreements. And then I think you remind one another of them a lot. So it's like, this thing has to be done. I'm, I'm going to take 65%. So what part do you want to take? We've got to handle this before Monday. What part do you want? And I'll do the rest. And that stops all of that manipulative. You didn't help. You don't care. Uh, or you didn't take into account what I might want to do. It stops all of that if you agree to it in peacetime, right? 
So Joe and I, in peacetime, agreed that he would have 51% and I would have 49 in terms of decision-making in our family. And he's smart enough not to abuse the power that comes with 51%. And I'm smart enough when he does, when he says, this is it, to say, okay. But that's because of an agreement we made over dinner one night, which in those days was probably at Chili's. <laughs> but we still do it. And so sometimes I say, is this 51%? Like, are you that sure? And if he says yes, then I'm honoring an agreement I made 30 years ago. And it doesn't get me all whipped up in real time. Yeah. You know, we just expect these things to work out when we're so different. Threes and fours are so different. That's why a three with a four wing is such a wild place to be on the Enneagram. Yeah. Y'all have got this. You bet. It's me again. Hi. Um, something. Uh, talking about the reasoning why not I'm married to a nine. I'm a three. Why nines have the lowest level of energy. Um, and it was about repressing. I'm, I'm probably not going to summarize it correctly, so I won't. Um, I'm curious. Well, let, me, let me just tell you what it's about. Yeah. And then we'll go from there. Yeah. Nines are the only people on the Enneagram who are boundaried internally and externally. So all day, every day, nines are trying to keep in anything that's going to cause conflict and keep out anything that's going to steal their peace. And they're good at it. But it's exhausting. It's just exhausting. And uh, uh, I... Sorry. I've been talking a lot today. Um, I interviewed my daughter Jenny today for on my podcast, and she's a nine, and she's a nine with an eight wing, and she talked a lot about energy, and she talked about it this way, and I told her I was going to start using it right away, but I didn't know I was going to start tonight, so <laughs> she taught me this today, and she said, and you know, some nines have one wing or the other, but lot, there are nines who have both wings from childhood, the, who don't like Joe's had both wings all of his life. Jenny has an eight wing and she's 37 and her one wing's just now coming. And here's what she said. She said, because of my eight wing, there are so many things that I want to do. But my lack of energy as a nine is like a leash. And when I see all these things that I want to do and I'd like to go do them and that leash just pulls me and pulls me back because I don't have the energy to do all the things that I would want to do or that I would like to do. We want to dismiss that as lethargy or laziness or disinterest. And I think that's seldom true. I think it's literally an energy problem. So Joe is uh, head of congregational care at a very large church. And uh, so there are 10 worship services at our church on a Saturday night and Sunday. And when he gets finished, he's an introverted nine. And when he finishes on Sunday at about 1230 or 1245, the back of his shirt is soaked all the way through winter or summer because it takes all he has. And when I finish teaching an eight-hour day, I'm whipped up and ready to go. It energizes me. So I told Jenny on the podcast today, I think since the 1960s, maybe early 70s, 
we kind of stopped using the word energy because we said such weird things about energy in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> and I, I think energy is actually something really important to talk about. And so we got to, uh, I, I think we need to be mindful that people we love really do have a limited amount of energy and they just can't keep up with us sometimes. Did you have a question that goes beyond that? Okay, what is it? <laughs> just if, um, I guess, so, so as not to take up too much time, um, is there a reason why maybe the aggressive numbers have more energy? Um, and if you could go into that. Yes. Yeah. The reason aggressive numbers have more energy is because feelings are a drag. <laughs> I mean, that's just the deal. That's it. Yep. It takes a lot of energy for feelings. What you got? Me? Yes, Yay. you. Uh, I'm Carissa. I'm a four. Um, and since you're a two, I want to ask you something that's going to make you really, really uncomfortable. And that is, what is it that other people who love twos can do to create a safe space for you to start expressing your needs? Because this is a challenge that I'm facing with twos that I love. Because as a four, it's not hard for me to keep pushing and going deeper into why is it hard for you to express that and trying to dig something up. But as a two, what is it that helps you get there and what did it look like for you to learn that? Okay. Um, for every number, there is a really hard question. And for twos, it is one of two. What do you need and what do you feel? And I probably am able to say what I really need and what I really feel to my four children and my husband, and that's it, never to a friend. Like, I don't, it's just too much work. Sometimes friends ask me for that. So um, I have a friend who used to be the executive director here. And uh, she and her partner gave me a journal. And they said, we want to know what you need from us in friendship. And we know that that's a hard question for you so that we're going we're gonna to give you three months to figure that out and journal about it, and then we'd like to have you for dinner, and you can tell us. And I really tried for the three months, and I came up with one thing, and the one thing was don't give me away. So I think uh, the deepest parts of Enneagram work can only be done with the people with whom we share the deepest parts of our lives. And understanding other people doesn't mean helping them. It doesn't mean feeling like you have to create space so that they can uh, answer the question for you. It really always means allowing. Allowing people to be on their own journey in their own time frame. And Still to this minute, and I'm telling you, nobody on the planet could love somebody more than I love Joe Stabile. And when he really is trying to care for me, he puts his hands on my face 
And he says, just tell me what you need and I'll do it. And at least five times out of ten, I don't know. So you can't set the table for us to know, only we can do that. You can't do the work for us to know, only we can do that. And when I feel like I have to give an answer, it's never true. And I love it that you want to know. And I'm grateful on behalf of your friends and the people you love who are twos that you care that much. It's just that that's just work they have to figure out how to do. Okay. Yes, sir. I'm definitely a five, but I have a, an internal critic that harshly talks to me a lot, like a one. What, what, is there anything I can do about that? I mean, what, what do you suggest? You spend most of your time in your head. It's a very, thinking is a comfortable place. So having conversations in your head is a comfortable place for you. And the, the one thing that you have going for you that sometimes eights, I mean, sometimes ones don't have, is that you're reasonable. And I would suggest that you be reasonable. We live in a very critical culture around uh, people who uh, have very poor boundaries and a lot of opinions. You know, my working definition of opinions is that uh, opinions are underdeveloped thinking. And it's very hard when social connection is a challenge because of your fiveness for you not to be hyper-attentive to criticism and critical voices that other people are paying attention to. And so I think we all have to find our own center and we have to find ways to reconnect to that center. So one thing I would suggest is that you use prayer beads. We have them here and they are, uh, Joe wrote the prayers and they're connected to the fruits of the spirit. And the reason I love the prayer beads is because after you pray the beads for a couple of years, a couple of months is great. A couple of years is kind of like breathing. Then you can just put your hand in your pocket and feel those beads and stop critical voices and stop performing for other people and stop not liking yourself. And it just takes you right back to that pattern from every day, you know, you can pray the beads in, I don't know, five minutes. But it becomes a grounding that doesn't represent the culture. And we don't have many. I think that might help. Okay, what you got? Um, I, I appreciate what you said about the internal and external boundaries. It's the first time I've ever heard that. And it just kind of struck me a little bit. So, but my question really comes back to, I have found ways when I do meditation or I'm doing good things for myself to stay present. I do hot yoga so that 90 minutes, if I'm not present, I'm falling on the floor. <laughs> and, and when I meditate or when I do meditative prayer, I generally, a friend of mine was on a podcast recently and she talked about using prayer beads. So mm -hmm. I didn't buy prayer beads, but I hang on to this, which is a ring Andy gave me a long time ago. We have practiced enough that 
I am somewhat successful in staying with him, present with him, Mm -hmm. but I am not very good at it with other people. Mm -hmm. That's because you don't have the energy. And how do, what can I develop? What habit or thing can I do to stay here when I'm dealing with other people? Okay. That's a great question. So we're going to start with you being nice to yourself. And then we're going to start with the fact that as a nine, you have some tremendous gifts that other people don't have, and you have some challenges that other people don't have. And the reality is, and you know people always laugh when I say this, and it's true, and often the truth sounds funny, but it's not meant to be funny. You hear about two-thirds of what happens, and one-third you don't get. There's nothing you can do to change that. So you have to figure out where you're going to put your energy to hear everything that somebody says. So you you decide what, Andy? No. Oh, okay. Y'all together? Yes. All right. So you did. Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. But there's always hope. All right. Sorry. So you two decide, you decide Mm -hmm. that you're, you know you can't be present to everybody and you can't listen to everything that anybody else says, so you are going to listen to everything he says. And then people, and I'm one of the worst or best, say a lot. And if your expectations for yourself are not too high, you'll usually get the gist And if it seems like they said something important and you missed it, then you have every right and reason to say, I'm sorry, I got distracted for a minute, and what you're saying really matters to me. So would you back up and say that again? And you limit the intake of noise and voice in places in your life where you can, like the radio and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you you just say, you know what, I... I'm so great because I see two sides to everything. And it's kind of a challenge that I only hear two-thirds of what's said, but I make up for it other places. And I, I think we do, we're worse when we're beating ourselves up and we're better when we're not. So you need to listen to everything Andy says and everything I say. And everybody else... <laughs> All right. Yes, ma'am. So I'm a two, and I love showing all of my friends about the Enneagram. Yeah. But I don't want to exploit them, I guess. And so I'm wondering, when is the right time to show people the Enneagram? When they ask you what's different about you. Okay. Or when you're talking about something that you recently learned about yourself, and they say, where'd you get that? You you offer it to them when they ask for it. So there's no wrong time to... No, but there's a wrong way. And the wrong way is, I'm a two, and I think you might be a six. (laughs) That's the wrong way. Uh, The wrong way is, oh, you know, I I know this thing. I'm I'm pretty sure you're an aggressive number. I'm pretty sure you have repressed feelings. That didn't get you anywhere. If you wait, the Enneagram is transformative enough that if you wait, your friends will notice a difference in you, and they'll ask. And another real good way is to buy a whole bunch of my books and give them as gifts. (laughs) 
I just want to affirm that last statement because we uh, went through, we bought your first book, read it, <coughs> believe it. And we really wanted our kids, you know, and so one set, Keith, my husband, thought, well, I'll just get an extra book, and he was going to just have them look at it, and my and he was traveling with our daughter, and she goes, oh, thank you. So he goes, I guess I gave her the book. But she read it. We, we said, read about us. <laughs> she read. We, of course, had decided who her husband was. But amazingly, he read and determined he was actually another number, so we reread, and he was. He was right, of course. We were wrong. But, <clears throat> but you're right. Having an extra book to hand out works. Yeah. It's lovely. It's really, it, because people want to learn things for themselves. And, and there are two things people don't like. And one is, the one response is, you don't know me. Well, actually, that's true. Because we don't know what motivates people, and your Enneagram numbers determine my motivation, right? And the other thing is that people don't want to be put in a box. So you can show them the box they're already in, without uh, being um, sure of yourself, right? And right now is the time to do it because the Enneagram is very trendy. It, it, and there's two sides to that. So, yeah. Okay, I, um, gosh. You know, it's a thing when your children want to do what you do. And it's not something that I ever expected. Um. And it's a thing when your children start to uh, embrace professionally like Joey and Billy and Joel have what you do. And then they start to teach you. And it's been my hope always in learning the Enneagram that whatever I offer somebody will take it and offer that and more. And so I love that you were here. I'm... Uh, working on a proposal for a new book. So I hope you'll want it and read it and be here again. I love that Joel led you, and he obviously did such a good job. Um, and always be aware of how much you taught each other while you were here. Because I'm really pretty good at this, and I can never say for your number what you can say better so um yeah all, all that all of that thank you for having me for questions and answers and suggestions and possibilities thank you the enneagram journey podcast is produced by life in the trinity ministry Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit the Enneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.